Luke six forty six through 49. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building, his, building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on, a, on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against the, that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Pray with me. Lord, no other foundation can be laid than that which is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That's the message that we hold on to. And the message that I ask that you would make clear tonight. Lord, we come hopeful and expectant to hear from you. If we don't hear from you, it would be best if we're not even here. There's other things we can be doing. But we come with that expectation. Lord, my words are death. Your words are life. Come breathe life here. Through the power of Your Spirit, crack open even the hardest of hearts. Your your Word says that Your Word goes forth like a hammer shattering a rock. And I pray that that would happen. So God, I pray that my words would fall to the ground and would blow away and not be remembered anymore. But Lord, let Your words remain And may they hit their mark. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I need to start this message um, by saying that I fall short. um, Way short of what I call others to. I fall short of the calling that I'm about to call you to. And you need to know that. These words of Jesus have been um, devastating to me this week. Um, It's a pretty easy message to understand. You know, at the end of his sermon on the plain or the plateau, um, Jesus, he doesn't mince words. He gets very blunt. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? I mean, it's it's not really a difficult statement. Um, It's pretty easy to understand. Uh, Maybe the Greek, you know, can kind of help any confusion. In the Greek, it means, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Uh, You can't wiggle out of it by using that. I I actually got multiple translations and thought maybe there's a window out of this. And, well, in the King James, it's, and why ye call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say. New Living Translation, so why do you call me Lord when you won't obey me? NIV, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Um, There's really not any difficulty in understanding exactly the point Jesus is trying to get across here. And this has been true of His entire sermon on the plateau. He's very blunt. It's not that we don't understand what He's saying, it's that we do. The reason that this text is so hard for me is because I have said, Lord, Lord. And I don't do what He asked me to do. 
And so I want you to know that I fall way short of the calling that I am calling you to tonight. I sat down to write this message early this morning, and um, as I'm sitting down and I, and I wrote, I got up and I decided that the office toilet needed to be cleaned instead. And so I got up and I just start cleaning the office toilet. I, I, it was, writing this was so painful, I would rather clean the office toilet than to write this. Um, I was talking with Lauren this week as we were going through the message, and I was saying, you know what? Next week, I, I think we're going to get out of Luke for just a little bit. We're just, we're just going to get out. It's, it's been kind of painful. Um, the, the Sermon on the Mount, on the Plateau, it's, it's been painful. I think we're going to do something else. And so I think we are for the next couple of weeks. I actually thought about Jonah and God saying, well, are you running away from my words? Is that what it is? And that's why you want to teach it? And, and that might be the case. Jesus here is demanding absolute allegiance from his followers. If you want to follow Jesus, you're going to follow him as king, and there are not any negotiables. There's no such thing as a half-hearted allegiance to the Lord. Now, Jesus is called a lot of things in the Bible. He's called our Savior. He's called our friend. He's called our great high priest. He's called our brother. And I think we often distort our image of Jesus by focusing on just maybe one of those things at the exclusion of the other. And so if, if you only think of Jesus as your friend or only think of Him as your Savior, then you have this distorted view of Jesus. Because Jesus is also our Lord. He's our King. And I think of all the things that we like to ignore most about Jesus, it is His kingship. It is His Lordship because we don't like people telling us what to do. We just don't. I mean, if any one of you comes up to me and says, you've got to listen to this CD, or you've got to listen or read this book, the first thing I want to do is be like, no way. It's just who I am. I bow up against anybody telling me what to do, and all of us have that in us. Even when it's Jesus. But when a king speaks, it's law. It's absolute law. You don't you don't tell a king, well, you know what, I just, just kind of tired and not feeling it today. So, you know, I just, I, I really don't think I'm going to obey you today, all right? Or you don't go to a king and say, actually, you know what, I've got a better idea. I, I don't think you really understand what's going on here, so my way is actually better. You don't say that to a king. What he says is the authoritative message. It is the law. That's what it means to be king. And Jesus isn't just any king. He's the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And one day we are going to see him in all of his glory. I mean, a a day is coming. I don't know if you can picture it, but a day is coming when when you're going to see Jesus in all of his glory and you're going to be there and there's going to be a billion people to your right billions to your right and you're looking there's going to be billions and billions of people to your left and you're all going to be gathered together before one man and when he comes before you you're going to realize all the words that have used been used to describe him they were just a shadow when the reality is there and when you see Jesus and, and, and phrases like from Colossians come to mind that 
He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were made. In heaven and on earth, whether visible or invisible, whether, whether thrones or dominions or powers or rulers, all things were made through Him and for Him, and He is before all things. And in Him all things hold together. And you're going to see that, and you're going to see it. Not just read it. Or in Ephesians 1, when it says Jesus is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and His name is above every name, both in this age and in the age to come. You are going to be there, and in that moment when Jesus is there, in all of His glory, you're going to look back at your life in absolute dismay. It's going to be inconceivable to you, incomprehensible at the small part, at the little place that you allowed that king of glory to be a part of your life. It's going to be incomprehensible for you as to how that happened. And you're, you're, all the, the wonder, the wonder that you were thinking about in this life, I wonder why I'm not happy in my church. I wonder why my, my marriage isn't all that I thought it would be. I wonder why my friendships aren't as deep as, as I hoped. All those disappointments, you're no longer going to wonder why. In light of Jesus, it's going to become crystal clear it's because of your half-hearted allegiance your entire life. Because of the small part that King of Glory was allowed into your life. It will become crystal clear. You called Him Lord, Lord. Yet you didn't do what He said. In Romans 14, we read this. If we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. And listen to this. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that He might be both Lord of the dead and of the living. The reason that Christ died and rose again was to be your Lord. Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 6 when he says, you are not your own for you have been bought with a price. All of us have been bought. Our Lord owns us. He owns us. This means that there's not an area in your life that our Lord does not want to be involved in. He owns all of you. He wants to be the center of every decision, every relationship. And looking back at my life, and I don't have to look very far, I... I begin realizing that I have a lot of other things that govern me. And I'm sure you do too. You know, if you get offered some job promotion, you know, it pays better money, instantly you take it. Usually, you just take it. You don't really seek the Lord about it because, hey, it's better money. And money's what governs you. Or if you can buy a house in a better neighborhood and you can get in now, you just want to go ahead and do it without really seeking the Lord. Because your social status or a bigger home are the things that govern you. But the Lord wants to be appealed to in every decision. He wants to be the center of everything. 
And all of us serve something. We, we saw that all through the book of Exodus. All of us serve something. And everything's a cruel master except for the Lord. It's only in Him that you'll know joy because you were created to worship Him as Lord. Now Jesus, He ends this sermon by giving a parable about two builders and two homes. This is His final point. He's wrapping up His sermon. And it's the summary and it's the conclusion of His entire sermon on, sermon on the plateau. He says you can either be like the builder who built his home on sand, or you could be like the builder who built his home on the rock. Um, Lauren and I have two, we view our home in two very different ways. We live in a 98-year-old home. Lauren, when she looks at our home, she sees the color of the walls, she sees the drapes, she sees the beautiful hardwoods, the crown molding, she sees all of these things. I look at our home, and God kind of gives me x-ray vision, and I see through the walls, and I see the termite damage, and I see the water damage, and when everybody's standing, I look under it, and I mean, I can see through the floor, and I'm just thinking, the foundation, oh my gosh. I mean, I remember right when we moved into the house, at one point we had like 50 plus people that were in our dining room, and I was calculating Everybody else are having fun, and I'm just calculating 50 people times 150. That's like 7,500 pounds. That's a car parked right in the middle of of our room. It's going to collapse. And everybody's just going around like nothing's wrong, and it's going to collapse. And that's how I think. And so instantly I go downstairs. The next day I shore up everything. It's fine when you come over now. The point of this is I'm right and Lauren's wrong in the way that we view our home. No. (laughs) foundation is huge. Without the foundation, everything crumbles. Now notice here, both men, they know they need to build a shelter. They both know they they need to build something. Every person knows that a storm is coming. You need shelter. One goes through this hard, hard route of digging deep down into the earth, to the rock, lays a good foundation. The other person just, you know, kind of comes up and sees this level, sandy area and is like, perfect, and starts building away. And they both build these homes. And, and certainly the one who's just building on the sand, he would have built a lot faster. I'm sure it was hard for this guy who's digging into this foundation. It had to be really hard day after day. He's toiling. And this guy, he's already got his house framed. He's already got the roof up. And he's just digging. It's a lot of work. But when both are finished, a storm comes. It causes a flood. And this flood, when it hits the, rock, the home that's on the rock, it doesn't do anything, but it hits the home that's on the sand and it's demolished. Jesus says, if you hear my words, you obey them. You're like the man he built on a rock. You don't obey them. You're like the man on the sand. Your home will be washed away. Everything you have built. Now throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, He speaks to two different people. If you go through, read it in Matthew, read it in Luke, you're going to see that He always divides the people into two different people with two different choices. In Matthew's account, 
just before the conclusion of the sermon and just before this story, Jesus says this, He goes, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those that find it are few. Very similar story to the builders. Now, most people think when Jesus divides these two groups, most people think that he's, he's talking about, you know, the religious people here, and he's talking about the irreligious people. He's talking about the good moral people over here, and he's talking about the people who aren't moral at all, or the people who believe God and the people who don't believe in God. Most people, when they read this, that is what they think the two groups are. But that is not what Jesus is talking about. Those are not the two groups. The the first group is those that are very religious, very moral, the people who do believe in God. And those are fools. The second group is the people who realize that they're not moral. They've got nothing to offer, so they cry out to God. And they are wise. Those are the fools And those are the wise all throughout Jesus' stories. Those are the two different roads. Jesus, He says, being moral and being being religious is easy. That is the easy road. That's the wide road. Most people are on that road. But their end is destruction. I mean, look at this. When, When Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord? Lord, Lord, uh, to, to say that name twice implies an intimacy. He's saying, why, why are you acting like we have this very intimate relationship when you don't obey me? Now, the people who don't believe in God don't say, Lord, Lord. But the people who go to church say, Lord, Lord. The people who pray say, Lord, Lord. The people who are moral say, Lord, Lord. That's who he's talking to, and he's calling them fools. They can be fools if they don't do what he says. And I tell you, this was sobering. Because I'm just thinking through all the times that you know, I've lifted my hands in worship, and I've said, Lord, Lord, and yet there has been such disobedience in my life. It's a wide road. The wise man is the one who enters by the narrow gate. Literally, in in Matthew, it's pinched. It's bottlenecked. There's this little teeny opening that people just kind of get stuck trying to go through. Pinched. These are the people who recognize their spiritual bankruptcy that they have nothing to offer. Very few people find this. Very few people dig down to the rock. Now, one of the first sermons I ever preached here at Redeemer when we were still at our house, I think it was the third Sunday, and it was just, you know, a few of us sitting in the living room, I preached about these two different paths that you can find in the Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Plain. Because I see it as absolutely crucial to understand who we are as a body. Jonathan Edwards, in his sermon, The Nature of True Virtue, said that there are two forms of moral behavior. He said that there's a form called common virtue 
in a form that's called true virtue. That these are the two roads. These are the two paths. Common virtue and true virtue. And he says that common virtue, it's the wide road. And it's governed by pride and it's governed by fear. Those are the two things that motivates a person. Pride and fear. That's their motivation. That's their fuel to make them moral people. For instance, he says that most people are honest. They don't lie because of fear and pride. You know, fear. They're they're afraid, what's going to happen if I lie? If I get caught in this lie, the business is going to go under. You know, if I get caught in this lie, I'm going to get fired. If I get caught in this lie, I'm going to go to jail. So I'm not going to lie. Fear is what makes them not lie. Or perhaps it's pride that makes them not lie. You know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not like one of those liars. Not me. I'm better than that. I'm not like those sinners. However, when you're moral out of common virtue, based out of fear and pride, you haven't actually done anything to deal with the issue of the heart the radical self-centeredness of your heart. It's left untouched. You you see, you've restrained your heart. Fear and pride have restrained it, but it has not changed it. As a matter of fact, you're actually appealing to self-centeredness in order to be moral. You're appealing to your own sinful nature as a a way of becoming moral. Uh, Maybe it'll clear it up if I go through another one. Adultery. Fear, all right. Fear is going to keep you from being an adulterer because fear of what's going to happen when word gets out. What's going to happen if my wife finds out? There is no way I'm having an affair. Fear. Or pride. I'm I'm not like those other pastors, you know, who've had affairs. I'm not like that. I'm better than that, so I'm not going to do it. Pride. And those things govern me and they keep me from having an affair. That's all great and good. Until fear and pride also become a reason for me to sin. And that's the danger of common virtue because the very things that that keep you from sinning can later become the very things that make you sin. Let's look at lying. i got to lie. Because if my boss finds out that I didn't do this work, he's going to kill me, so i just got to tell him I did the work. So you lie. If the boss finds out we haven't made as much money as as we had hoped, he's going to close the business. So you lie. Or pride. You know, if I put this on my resume, I'm going to look really, really good. I'll look really good. People think something of me. And so now fear and pride actually make you sin. And all the while, your heart is unchanged. Sometimes fear and pride restrain your heart, and other times it moves your heart to sin. That's what common virtue does. I cannot tell you how many people I know who have gone to church, professed Jesus, have come to my office, confessed affairs, confessed drug addictions, and all these things, and said, that's that's not who I am, Joel. Joel. That's not who I am. I say, well, actually, it is who you are. That's why you're this. Just as Jesus said, you know, you know a tree by its fruits. Because you think you couldn't do it, that means you're definitely capable. And yes, your parents raised you up ripe for this. 
Because they appeal to your selfishness as a way to be a moral person. Do this and people will like you. Don't lie. You'll get caught and your life's ruined. But your heart was never changed. That's common virtue. True virtue is when you obey God for God's sake. True virtue comes from an understanding of the gospel. True virtue actually deals with the heart. Because it takes fear and it takes pride and it destroys them. It takes fear and it destroys it because as you, you have nothing to worry about. My affection for you will never, ever end. It, it levels pride because it says you're actually worse than you even know. Liar? Of course you're a liar. You've even deceived yourself. But you're absolutely secure. You have nothing to fear. My love for you is absolutely unending because of my son Jesus. And so the gospel, it kills fear and it kills pride and it enables you to actually obey. And I realize this is deep stuff here, but you've got to understand this if you're going to understand Jesus' thrust in this passage. You need to understand this. Let's apply this to this sermon. Jesus has just given a lot of commands. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Someone steals your cloak. Give them your tunic. Don't judge people. I mean, there's a whole lot of commands that Jesus just gives. And then he says, now, if you're going to call me Lord, Lord, obey them. You've got to obey them. And at first, you think this is a common virtue. It's like, you better obey them if you're going to call me Lord, because a flood is coming, let me tell you. And if you haven't obeyed it, you're going to be wiped out. And you're thinking, fear, I've got to try to obey. And if you walk out of here and you think, that's, that's the point of this all. I've got to leave here. I've got to try to love my enemies better. I've got to really do this. So you know what? You're building on sand. It's going to be easy for a week. You're going to go in here and have this glorious house as you always remind yourself, you know, I've got to love my enemies. I've got to do good to those who persecute me. But then when wave after wave of the storm hits, it will crumble. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. When you hear all of these commands and Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do what I say, you should respond, gosh, I don't know. It's because I'm a sinner. I can't do it. And it drives you to the gospel. And once you hit the gospel, it can turn around and you can actually obey the command. But the command first drives you to your need for the gospel before you can ever obey the command. And you see that here. You've got to dig down and find the gospel. You know, most of the time when I try to obey these words, most of the time, this is where I had to confess that I fall short of this, I build on sand because I've got a lot of self-control got a lot of discipline, and I can fool a lot of people, and so, you know, I can smile while I'm spewing venom inside. The gospel hasn't changed my heart in many ways. I'll try to love my enemy. I I can think of a few years ago, I had an enemy. I had a, a person who, they spread lies about me, 
Um, they accused me of some pretty serious things that absolutely had no foundation. This was my enemy, and, and, and often this person would confront me or, or, or really say der, some deriding remarks to me, and he would always make sure that there were people present. He always wanted to try to humiliate me in the presence of others, and my blood would boil as I'm smiling. My blood would boil, and I'd be thinking, love your enemies. Come on, you're better than that, Joel. Love your enemies, and not smile. And God's saying, Joel, you're building on sand. You're building on sand. And so I would have to stop and I would think, okay, all right. Why is it this person's words bother me so much? Why why do they bother me so much? Because he's a pig-headed idiot. That's why they bother me. And God's like, no, no, you're building on sand. Come on, dig. I think, all right. His words bother me so much because I guess I value what other people say about me. I guess I value his words. I guess to some degree I see my worth based on what others view me as. And I hear Jesus say, all right, you just picked up a shovel. Now start digging. And so I think, okay, I guess I want... Others, too, you know, think highly of me because I, I feel the need for their approval. But, but I know I don't need their approval. It doesn't matter what they say about me. It, what, what matters is what I think about myself, and I know my worth. And God's like, you just threw away your shovel. You're back on sand again. Like, ah, okay, all right. Or no, okay. It doesn't matter what they think about me. And it doesn't matter what I think about me. What matters, God, is what you think about me. And Jesus says, all right, you're digging. You're digging. Now, now keep digging now. Come on, dig. And then I start thinking about the cross. And, and I remind myself that Jesus died for me and that Jesus held me of such value that He gave His life for me. Because He loved me. He endured far more ridicule, far more persecution than I will ever know he went to hell for me Jesus is like you're starting to scratch the rock you're starting to scratch now keep going and I think in light of all of that when I when I see that and I find my value and my worth and what you've done for me on the cross what does it matter what this person says to me you have shown me my value You have shown me your love for me. My identity is built on you. Loving this guy is easy. And God says, you built on the rock. Now you can love your enemy. And it becomes easy. It becomes an overflow of the gospel. It's hard work. You've got to keep digging. Because some of you are going to go out here and you're just going to try to obey. You're just going to try to give more to the poor. You're just going to try to pray for those who persecute you. You're just going to try to love your enemies. Give away your cloak when people take your tunic and all that. Man, and the building's going to go up fast and it's going to come crashing down because it hasn't been built on the rock of the gospel. Keep digging. The gospel is not just the message in which you're saved by. It is the gospel in which you live by. 
You are not saved by works here, but you are saved unto works. That is what the Gospel releases in you. That's how we build on the rock. That's how we're able to call Jesus Lord, Lord, and do what He says. And pray with me. Lord, bring clarity to Your Word and conviction. Lord, You say most of us are on the wide road. Most of us. That's why it's wide. It's easy. I pray that not a single person here would assume that they're building on a rock that they are on the straight and narrow. God, reveal to us all the times we say, Lord, Lord, and do not obey. May that drive us to the cross. I pray in the moments ahead and just a time of reflective prayer, Lord, that you would help us dig deep into your gospel to take the time and dig so we could get at the root issue, the heart issue as to why we have such a hard time obeying You. And then may You change us. Pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.